Well, thank you, Sam, and uh, greet you all here this evening. Uh, it sure is uh, good to be together this way, and I appreciated what Sam shared, and I think his, uh, some of his experiences may have been a little like mine, where, uh, you know, even, even today, I think our concept of the future is very limited. To know how God uh, put together a plan before he started and he's going to finish it out exactly the way he intended when he started. Uh, there won't be anything missed. Uh, we don't understand all those things, but it's a marvelous thing. I uh, noticed there's uh, some here that weren't here the other time. Last time we basically looked at uh, kind of an introduction of prophecy as being the oral or written message of a prophet and uh, some things like that. I'd, I'd just like to uh, go over the importance of prophecy again. The prophetic portions of Scripture constitute about one-fourth of its content. Biblical prophecy is the key that unlocks the treasures of God's Word. Understanding prophecy and its practical applications to our lives is essential to reflect God's holiness. And so prophecy has a special priority in the word of God. It affects our attitude toward evangelism, morality, sin, and righteousness. And prophecy is not intended, and Sam alluded to that, to open the future to idle curiosity, but for a higher purpose of furnishing light to those whose faith needs, conf needs confirming. Psychiatrists say we need three things to have a happy, meaningful life. It's something to live for, something to hope for, and something to love. And God provides those three uh, in Christ for us. And uh, I know there are a lot of things written that I don't understand, but this is a... Uh, a marvelous book and uh, somehow every time you read it you will find something you hadn't seen before but it was there all the time and so there is that sense in which there are some things that we need to know before we can know the rest I was asked uh, since our last meeting, uh, someone asked me uh, whether uh, we're going to go into the book of Revelation. Uh, 
Well, we are. Uh, maybe not in detail. I don't know. Uh, uh, I would really prefer to go to the book of Daniel before the book of Revelation for this uh, fact. Uh, people read the book of Revelation but don't know what the rest of the Bible says. And so they get all confused and all mixed up. And so, uh, unless we know, it's almost like picking up a new book and reading the last chapter. You have no clue what was written in the other chapters. And that's the way the Word of God is. I believe the Word of God is, uh, is God reveals in each era he adds to what his plan is. And it's like one of my Bible school teachers said years ago. He said that we cannot know anything about God that he hasn't revealed to us. And so, uh, you know, I, I hear people reading a portion of scripture and they say, well, I wonder what that means. They'll read a newspaper, and they'll believe what they read. And that, that same Bible school teacher used to tell us, said, if the Bible doesn't mean what it says, no one can say what it means. You know, if, if it doesn't mean what it says, how do we know what it says? And so... I also covered a little bit about methods of interpretation, and I, I do that simply to uh, ex somewhat explain why I believe what I believe. When you resort to a non-literal method of interpretation, there's nothing really for sure. You can take it where you want to if you want to make an allegory out of everything that's written. There are allegories in Scripture. That's, that's true. And so people say, well, if you uh, take everything literal, uh, you don't allow for allegories or figures of speech and things like that. But that's, that's not correct. Because to take... To take the Bible literally is to take an allegory as an allegory, a figure of speech as a figure of speech. But we never make a figure of speech out of a literal statement. And so that's where, and so we were, um, the last time, uh, I invite you to turn uh, your Bibles to Deuteronomy 15. And we're <clears throat> in a section here where I have tried to I have tried to pick out a list of scriptures that uh, point to a coming Messiah. And of course we started there with uh, with um, 
Genesis 3.15. Excuse me, let me me read. Uh, Okay, I'll I'll get that. Uh, I want to go down through here. In uh, Genesis 3.15, we have the first prophecy of a Messiah coming or a deliverer, one who will, uh, you know, what does it say, uh, defeat Satan. And so we go to Genesis uh, 9, 927, and here uh, of the sons of Noah, after the flood, Shem is highlighted. Uh, if you turn to that, there's something like, uh, uh, it's when he was uh, blessing his sons, and he said that, uh, that Japheth shall dwell in the tents of Shem, which is a way of saying that there's going to come from the descendants of Shem a a deliverer. And uh, Japheth will be included in that. Uh, Has reference, I think, to to the Gentiles being brought in in Christ. And some of these scriptures are kind of vague if you don't know what the rest of the book says about them. And so then in uh, Genesis 12, uh, I'm forgetting to keep you update here. Genesis 12, uh, Abraham is called. And he was given uh, promises of a land, of a prosperity, posterity, and uh, that uh, in him will all the nations be blessed. And I've talked to people from uh, locally, I've talked to people in other countries who claim that they can trace their ancestry back to Abraham. And this is, I think, an attempt to be able to connect to the blessings that were promised to Abraham. Well, we don't have to be able to trace our lineage to Abraham to have that. We have that in Christ, who is a descendant of Abraham. And I think that's what God had in mind here. In Genesis 17, then, uh, the... um, the, uh, Isaac is singled out, and uh, even though Ishmael was a firstborn, uh, God made very clear that that Isaac shall be the one. It's uh, out of the seed of Isaac, and uh, as we follow that from where we are, we can uh, we can uh, maybe understand that a little better. And then in Genesis 26, uh, God gives basically the same promise to Isaac that he did to uh, Abraham. And that is to continue through Isaac, even though he did have some blessings for uh, for, uh, Ishmael. Also, and then we go to uh, the um, 
Genesis 49.10, and here the uh, sons of Jacob, Judah, is highlighted. Uh, let me see, can I get that, uh, what he says about Judah, that, uh, can you help me out, Jonathan? The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. And uh, so you have that. Now, if you have your Bibles open to uh, uh, Deuteronomy 18.15. Here Moses, if you can get the setting of Moses uh, here, had the children of Israel all gathered together there in the plains of Moab, uh, basically on the uh, banks of the Jordan River. And this was Moses, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' last message to the, those who had survived the wilderness journey. And he tells them there in verse uh, 15, he said, the Lord thy God will raise up Unto thee, a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. There's to be one like Moses. And he said, you're to hear him. And of course, we have Jesus several times during his uh, journey here, he would... Uh, leave a message there at his baptism, the Mount of Transfiguration, and he affirmed, this is my beloved son, hear him. And we believe that uh, is uh, what... Uh... Now I'd like to take you to, uh, this is kind of a long journey uh, for the children of Israel, uh, it, we'd have to go to the book of Daniel where the, um, the kingdoms were there uh, shown to Nebuchadnezzar. And up until this time, there were either judges, excuse me, and later kings. You had a divided kingdom. And uh, they all had their own kings. And uh, I have some uh, writings that list all the kings. In the kings of the southern kingdom, there isn't listed one good king. In the list of the kings of Judah, there's a variety. But they're all from one dynasty, uh, somewhat related, and so on, is kind of interesting, and I don't know what that means. Uh, uh, Manasseh, who reigned, I think, 52 years, the longest of any of the kings. As he reigned 52 years. And he's listed by some as the worst king that reigned in Judah. It was in the time of Manasseh that the children of Israel came to the point 
where they crossed the border. And uh, uh, God said something like, uh, you're beyond return. They did have a couple revivals and there were a couple good kings after that. But then, uh, then uh, finally, there in Ezekiel 21, 26, when Zedekiah, the last king, and this here was right at the time of the captivity, and uh, some of them, I think, had already gone. And uh, the Lord said that they're to take away the diadem and all the, the crown and all those things. He says, I will overturn, 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 and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is and I will give it to him. And I think, if I may just insert here, that as I, as near as I can see, in putting all those scriptures together, this has reference to the millennium. When, uh, when I think God is going to complete and fully work out his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, we'll get into the... Uh, some of those uh, later on. In Luke 21, Jesus said that, uh, and this is uh, the chapter in Luke that uh, has reference to what we call the Great Tribulation. And uh, Luke 21, 24 says, they shall fall by the edge of the sword, they shall be led away captive, into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the, of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And of course, we're living in the day when uh, Jerusalem is still trodden down by the Gentiles. And uh, the Bible teachers 50 years ago, I don't think, thought it would take this long. There was a big uh, a kind of a, a, a ray of hope rose up in 1948 when Israel was given, uh, recognized as a nation. But that's, that's still a difficulty. And uh, I understand that some of the, in some of the schools, in the Arab schools, uh, Israel is not on the map. You know, and uh, so that's, uh, I mean, uh, I was reading uh, several months ago where they were listing how many 
uh, of the people of are coming back to Israel. And it's many. I don't know what they're doing with all of them. Of course, they're building houses and they're claiming that uh, that uh, they they're intruding on on the Arab or the Palestinians and. Uh, the, that's another story that would, it's kind of difficult to put together because uh, maybe I could insert at this point, if we look carefully at God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were promised a land and they were promised prosperity in the land if they follow him. But the church was never promised a land. And I don't know if you've heard anybody say anything about that the church has replaced Israel. Well, I haven't found one scripture that supports that. The scriptures say that he's not finished with them yet. And he has yet a greater thing for them. And that's one of the things that I, I just kind of look at. How is this? Somehow, the church is a special group of people. And so is Israel. And somehow God has arranged that when it's all over and we get to the eternal state, everything will be together. We'll all be together. All the believers in Jesus Christ, the church and Israel and whoever else that has come in through Jesus Christ. And so uh, uh, we have the advantage today in that we can look at these scriptures and we see what Christ has done. They look forward to that. And that's what kept them going. As I said the last time, the prophetic word has been a ray of hope for the believers throughout all ages, and it is, still is. What would we have, what would we do if we wouldn't believe what God says about the future? Would life be worth living for? All right, Daniel 2. Now we come and, and here, uh, <clears throat> maybe I should have had this before Ezekiel, although uh, uh, chronologically it's probably right about the same time, right after, uh, uh, scripture doesn't tell us how long Daniel was in Babylon until Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, but Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2, 34 and 35 saw a stone that was cut out without hands, which smote the image 
upon his feet of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote that image became a mountain and filled the whole earth. And I have no difficulty with understanding that as also to be the millennium and then the eternal state. As an establishment that will go on forever, according to that. And then we also go a little further in Daniel 2, and it says in the days he, was, he had, uh, in that dream, you have four kings, uh, you know, four different nationalities ruling, and uh, he says, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people which shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. And so don't ask me to explain that in detail. But I think the end result is going to be glorious and it'll be a time when everybody, all believers will honor the Lord Jesus Christ and even the unbeliever when they come up and they're raised from the dead will most likely bow their knees. How did uh, Paul say that? He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, there in Philippians. And he said, because of that, he has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that every knee shall bow, every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. And so that. All right, we have one more in uh, Daniel 9. There were, it talks about the 70 weeks, and we don't have time to go into all that. But very interesting here in the last verses uh, where he talks about... Uh, Seventy weeks are determined. Now, it, it is helpful for me throughout these prophetic books, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. There are phrases like here, says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. Daniel was told, in the, some of the visions that he had, that he, God is giving them to him so that he would know what will befall his people, who were his people. 
the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, it is helpful to, to keep us in context with what the scripture is talking about. And then, uh, yeah, it talks about, I don't have my notes complete here, but uh, one note here in the last verse, if you have that in your, uh, if you have your Bible open to Daniel 9.27, there he gives kind of a, what do you call it, panoramic view of a period of time that John uses 13 chapters to give details in the book of Revelation from Revelation 6 through 18. And it's just a, kind of a nutshell there in Daniel 9, 27. And so that's what becomes a very interesting and exciting for me in uh, going through these scriptures and trying to just simply believe what God is saying. Even though I don't understand how he can do that. I mean, if you, if you look the history of some of the people that God used in the lineage of Christ. It was no problem. I mean, uh, uh, probably be helpful for us if we could uh, see each other as Christ does and he sees uh, the good that can come out. All right, any, any questions or any thought, anything you'd like to say here? Uh, I may have. Uh, you want to read that? Yeah, it talks about that stone. Though. Yeah. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, without it breaking the pieces of the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king, which has come to pass thereof, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Uh, now I'd like to uh, ask a question. Where is Jesus Christ today? What is his role today? Intercession. That's right. Preparation. Preparation. Okay. You want to maybe uh, enlarge on that? Let not your heart be troubled. I go to the fear of place for you. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I find it interesting. I'd, I'd like for you to look at a couple of these scriptures in uh, what uh, is uh, going on here. 
Now, Matthew 26, we have, uh, we're at the trial of Jesus, and uh, the high priest asks Jesus a question, and he says, now I'm not sure, does he, he doesn't ask him if he's the son of God, does he? He asks him, are you a king? And uh, Jesus responds in verse 64, and he says, Jesus saith to him, thou hast said, and I think, I think that thou hast said is a confirmation that what you said is right. And... Uh, but he went on and he said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. What was the high priest's response? accuse him of blasphemy now I'm not sure in one of the gospels it says he rent his clothes and I think he knew what Jesus is referring to because he was referring to himself as the one that is going to come with power and great glory and that was too much for the high priest and so it would have been blasphemy if anyone else would have said what Jesus did and claimed to be who he is. But they didn't. Uh... All right, let's go to uh, Mark uh, sixteen nineteen, And there again, uh, uh, it's the same incident there. He said the Lord had spoken unto them. He was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Luke 22. Luke 22, uh, 69. Again, hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. And uh, Peter... Uh, touches on that in Acts 2, 33 to 35 in his message there after Pentecost. And he says, therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received the, of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which we, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. And I think there's another reference to the throne and uh, the kingdom on this earth. Relating to 
the thousand years, which we want to look at a little bit after a while. And in Acts 7, here's an interesting one. In Acts 7, 56. And uh, this is at the stoning of Stephen. How did he see Jesus? He saw him standing. And I don't know of any other reference except uh, maybe uh, till we get to about Revelation 5 that we have any other scripture referring to him as standing, but as sitting not on the throne, but with the Father in his throne. Did you ever notice the invitation he gives in Revelation uh, 2 to the church of Laodicea? And he says that to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and am set with my Father in his throne. And uh, we want to, uh, once we get there, notice especially in Revelation 19 where he isn't any longer uh, sitting. And uh, other scriptures that refer to his coming with power and great glory. But it appears as if here he was especially pleading there and was standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. But other than that, he's, he is seated. We go to uh, uh, Romans then. Oh, I forgot to put that up. Okay. <clears throat> Romans eight thirty four. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Brother asked me some years ago, did you ever think about how often Christ has to intercede for you in a day? That's kind of challenging. You know, how often do we think about it? We have then in uh, Colossians 3 and verse 1, and it says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth, on the right hand of God. And uh, so then, we have uh, several in Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had him by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, I read one man who said that in the tabernacle, and in the temple, there was no chair for the high priest. His work was never finished. 
Now, if you go to uh, Hebrews and uh, you read the passage in uh, Hebrews 8, it goes uh, 13 verses there and talks about what he did and then he was finished. I mean, that's implied here. Uh, then uh, Hebrews 10, again, he, uh, making reference to Christ, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, did what? sat down on the right hand of God. And uh, also, from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. I'm not sure that I can uh, quite uh, explain uh, that, uh, that idea of footstool. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's uh, mentioned a number of times, but I think it has to do with him uh, reigning. Now, we have places where it talks about him reigning uh, with a rod of iron. But the one I like in uh, Peter, Second uh, Peter 3, where it talks about, uh, uh, you know, the earth melting and all those things that take place. And he says in the last latter part of that, he says, but we, we, the believers in Jesus Christ, we look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Can we fathom that? There's nothing to distract us from the righteousness of God. Everything will be okay. Everything will be right. After Christ brings everything together. Of course, evil will be uh, stamped out and uh, Satan will be taken care of and, and all that. All right, we also have that verse. Uh, I guess that didn't come up. All right. All right there's another one in Hebrews 12, too. It says, uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God 1 Peter 3:22 referring to Christ who's gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God angels and authorities and powers be made subject unto him. Well, any thoughts? Anything you'd like to uh, like to? Uh
share. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. One of the image, images that comes out of ancient warfare, both in, in the Bible and in the decades since, in the centuries since then, um, the ultimate uh, stamp of victory for them was when the victorious general would put his foot on the head of the of his, yeah. of his defeated general. Yeah. Hadn't thought about that one. Well, it's. I think the same idea there. Well, I think uh, I find it interesting. You know, I hear preachers talk about uh, those who have gone on before and uh, they're on the golden streets and everything like that. Well, uh, not sure that that's quite correct yet. Uh, I think probably those things will come after the judgment seat of Christ and after the marriage supper of the Lamb and, and some of those. But that's all right. You know, we, we don't. God just has not given us a lot of details. And so I guess it's not that important for us to know. It, uh, yes. Uh, you mentioned the marriage supper of the land. Where do you put that in the timeline? Or maybe that's why there was so many sons of what you know. Yeah, well, uh, I would like to uh, uh, go to that next. Uh, my next uh, subject is... Uh, the uh, return of Christ. And so, let's see, Sam, you made reference to, we thought that, uh, you know, it's going to be the end of the world and uh, everything will happen at one time and uh, all of a sudden uh, uh, the sinners are all in hell and the believers are in heaven. And uh, somehow I don't think God quite intends to make it, to have it over with quite that quick. But I think, uh, as I would understand, I would anticipate that our next event will be the sound of the trumpet and Christ will come for his own. And when I say his own, I mean the bride of Christ. Somehow, I don't think that the Old Testament saints and uh, the uh, seed of Israel are uh, excluded and I don't know how all that is supposed to work out at the end. But there's something about, and I noticed that Paul in uh, hmm, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, I'm not quite sure, 
he comes to a place and he says, give none offense, neither to the Jew nor the Gentile, nor the church of God. Now, I believe, as I understand the New Testament, that in the church, Jew and Gentile is alike. I, I think they're, in, they're included. But other than that, God has... A, I don't know how to say it a different role for the church and for the those that will come in after the rapture and after his own are called out. And that one of the uh, basic uh, references that we have here is in 1 Thessalonians 4. And maybe you want to just open your Bibles and look at that. And beginning in verse 13, he says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, you know how all that is going to be uh, but that'll be quite an event and I think we uh, do well to uh, do what we know to do to be included in that All right, we have then another one in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 51 and 52, where he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall, we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. Now, uh, how do you put that together with, see, in Revelation 1, it, there's one verse there that talks about that. Uh, 
every eye shall see him. And uh, other places it talks about uh, the sky rolling back as a scroll and uh, people on the earth will be crying for rocks and mountains to fall on them. How do you put all that together with the concept that you shared here this evening, Samuel? It's and those were the things that, you know, I, uh, I uh, struggled with at one time, but I'm convinced that those, these things don't happen at the same time. And uh, so uh, after uh, the church is taken out, I think there'll be, uh, there'll be some uh, hard times on the earth dwellers as we have in Revelation uh, 6 through 13. Any thoughts on that? I feel uncomfortable about believing that we shall quail and cry when we see him as a Christian. Yeah. We should be so excited we wouldn't know how to express our emotions. Hardly. Yeah, well. And joyful. But do you think that that verse means, well, God is so big that he could be seen at once by everyone. We don't understand that. Yeah. Do I believe? Do you believe that those that are going to be weeping and quailing when he comes would be the unsaved? Do you think the Lord wants yeah. to be that way? Yeah. And I also think it'll be at a different time. It won't all happen at, at one time. Uh, the, uh, see, I think there is something about the first coming of Christ that sets the stage for the rest of the events. Yeah, they're, they're so connected. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm talking about, yeah, see the, the Christ dying on the cross and more significant is that he was raised from among the dead. And you read in the epistles, there's a lot of reference made to resurrection from the dead or from among the dead. That's our hope. That's what clinches uh, and uh, gives us what we need there. Yeah, well, uh, I'd like to turn, take you to uh, Revelation 4.1. Now here, we believe John was on the Isle of Patmos, and uh, this one day he found himself in the spirit, and I don't know what all that means. And uh, God showed him some things. 
And in verse in Revelation 4.1, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must be hereafter. And I, I think the rest of the book, that John wrote, he saw from that perspective, you know. And uh, after, uh, you know, then you have chapter five and, and chapter four, they, they're honoring uh, Christ for, uh, as, a, as our creator. In chapter five, they honor him as our redeemer. Thou hast shed thy own blood for us. Not exact words there, but the, that idea is there. All right, anything here? Uh, I don't know, how late do you people want to be here? Is it about time to wrap up? <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, let's go to the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, let's see here. Where am I? Revelation 4.1. I'm sorry. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, let's see how, just how does that say? That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, when I was over in, uh, in Greece, over in the place of Corinth, we walked through a big place where they had reconstructed what they think was there before. And we got up to a place where there was a big pulpit. And on the front of that pulpit, it said bima. And that's the Greek word for judgment seat. And so I said to Abner Stolz, I said, what's this? Oh, he said, this is where the athletes got their trophies. As I understand the judgment seat of Christ, this is not a place where you find out whether you're saved or not. And this is where you get your rewards. What does it say? Whether what you did was good or bad. And that, that just gave me a whole different concept of the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, uh, 
And that's, uh, at this point, the, uh, the uh, unbelievers are still in their graves, as I understand the scriptures. Romans 14.10, uh, again, uh, uh, I have an interesting question there. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He'll take care of things. We don't need to. And, uh, and then uh, there's another reference to Revelation 22:12, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according to his, his work and so on. And uh, very interesting to me, we, I don't believe we're saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. But after, when we're saved through grace, I think God expects that we bring our lives under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and do only what's right. What we know is right. Because as far as I know, all of the scriptures that refer to rewards refer to them as being given according to what the person has done. Not to be saved, but after he's saved. And so, all right, uh, I'm ready to uh, bring this to an end. Uh, unless somebody has anything yet, I'll give opportunity for questions in uh, my next uh, Well, as near as I can tell, uh, that's, uh, turn with me to Revelation 20. Now, that's a little further down the road, but uh, a very interesting passage to me. Here it talks about uh, those who were saved during the tribulation. And uh, uh, Satan was cast into the bottomless pit, and uh, he saw the souls, in verse 4, of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, uh, and so on. And then it says... Uh, uh, and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So somehow they are brought up uh, sometime between the rapture and uh, the thousand year reign. But look what the next verse says. It says, but the rest of the dead, 
lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And so, does the picture become smaller or bigger of God's plan? <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, well, I just marvel. So does that answer your question? Who? Oh, okay. Go ahead, read it. Go ahead, read it. Yeah, well, all right, Any anything else, any testimonies or anything you'd like to say? Well, I think the uh, I think there's other renderings that would give the idea there that whether what you did was worth anything or whether it was worthless and not uh, not evil. The evil has to be taken care of, and we thank God that. We can take that care of that before we get to this place. And uh, so, the thing that has helped me erase John Wayne is the difference between the great white throne judgment and the crimson sea. The great white throne judgment is where all the ungodly appear that they're being rewarded. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe we can cover that the next time. That's the latter part of. Revelation 20, and uh, gives you a whole different uh, scene there, and uh, and so, well, I don't know how it'll be. Uh, sometimes I think uh, maybe when I get there, I'll see some things, and I'll wonder why didn't I see that? But I do expect there will be some things there that I'll just look at and I'll say, no wonder I couldn't understand that. You know, I, that's the way I, I see it. And I, I just, uh, as I try to see God's program where, see, we had... Uh, one summer in Bible school, Ken Kaufman had a topic on the attributes of God, and he made a statement at that class that I have not forgotten. And he had a whole list of attributes. And he said, there may be, there may be many more. But he said, uh, one thing interesting about all this, he says, God is all of those all the time. He doesn't have to... Uh, change for different situations. God is constant and is always does it the same way. Now, the working out of it isn't always the same, 
but it's always the same. Uh, it's for redemption. And so the book we're carrying is a book of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. And it is revealed as time goes on. See, Paul uses that phrase in Ephesians where he says in the dispensation of the uh, I, uh, and see, the word dispensation there is used, I think, five or six times in the New Testament, but never has reference to an era of time. But it's a dispensing of God's plan and working it out a little bit at a time, each at its own time. Jesus came uh, in the fullness of time when the time was right. That's when he came. And I believe that's when the trumpet will sound, too. And uh, that's one thing. We don't have a time frame given as far as I, as I know. All right. Uh, any, uh, anything else you'd like to share? Yeah, well, we talked uh, <clears throat> a little bit about uh, about methods of interpretation, and uh, there's where the difference is. Uh, and uh, I don't know right how to break in there. And of course, the uh, the reformers were. Uh, probably mostly uh, uh, would have used the allegorical method of interpretation because that was the standard for the Catholic Church. But uh, if you want to do some reading on that, you should read the, uh, the uh, methods of interpretation and the history you familiar with Robert Shank's writings? He has a, he wrote a book on uh, life in the sun, and then he has another one. I believe I have that here someplace. Yeah, on Hill, and he has in the back of this an addendum, and explains where the early church was. The early church. Uh, was more on course than the reformers were. And, uh, and uh, the thing I object to a non-literal method of interpretation is how they arrived at that method. Men like Oregon and Augustine, and they were teachers from... Uh, they were Greek philosophers from the school of Alexandria. And some of the statements they make are far out. And uh, according to 
the writings that I have, there's, there was no church that adopted the allegorical method of interpretation until about 431. Well, that opened the way for Constantine and all the work he did and things like that. And uh, <clears throat> men like Justin Martyr would have said, I think that's a quote from him where he said, anybody in the church that would not have believed in a millennium would have been considered a heretic. And I don't know why those people don't go back there instead of stopping where they think the, uh, the uh, Anabaptists and the Reformers were. The Reformers weren't all on the same place. All right. Uh, shall we stand? Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we stand before you with gratitude and praise and honor and glory to you for your word. And thank you, dear Heavenly Father, for those who have gone the way before us and have taught us your word, have preserved it, and have uh, allowed for uh, you to use them to... Uh, pass it on down to us. And I pray that somehow we could continue that passing of the torch, that uh, the next generations would highly esteem your word. And I pray, dear Father, that you would help us and uh, uh, pray that what has been said this evening, uh, you would use it for your glory. Where I uh, am off course, I trust you to give us direction and show us by your word. And so we thank you again and trust you to go with us and uh, thank you for uh, salvation in Christ and help us, dear Father, to learn what it means to live under his lordship. And so may your blessing be with each of us as we go from here and help us to honor you in whatever we do. We trust and thank you for this place and thank you for those who have come out. Pray for your blessing upon Amy Kings and as they uh, provide for this and help us, dear Father, to be sensitive to what you want for us and what is important. We trust you and thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.